Good morning. Excited. Uh, hey, if you're a guest, my name's Rob. I'm one of the ministers here at New Hope, and we're just glad that you're here with us this morning. I'm going to cover just a few things, some uh, housekeeping items here. Uh, and while I'm doing that, uh, there's a card in the seat back in front of you, a Connect card. And when you fill that out, it really helps us out because we love staying connected to you and your family, being able to answer questions. But what we love more than anything else is the prayer. On the back of that card, you can put a prayer request. If you're going through a difficulty or a tough season as a family and you want someone praying for you, our elders meet on Saturday mornings and we pray over all the prayer concerns you put on those cards. And so when you fill that out, just know you're going to be prayed for. Appreciate it. Now, while you're filling that out, uh, two things. One, this is VBS week. We're leading into uh, one of the busiest, most chaotic, and really beautiful weeks of the year here at our church. Uh, we're going to have over 400 kids, hundreds of volunteers, lots going on, uh, and it all gets started like right after this service. And so if you're someone who's like, oh, really, I can help, then you can hang out after the service and help them with some setup. You do not get to drive any of the ATVs that are in the building, uh, but you might, yeah, I know, you might be able to set up some dirt bikes and do some other things that they've got coming in to prepare for tomorrow morning's launch. So if you can hang out after... Uh, and help move some things around and get set up. Uh, that team, Jess and his team, would be really appreciative of that. So uh, in addition to that, uh, I wanted to take just a moment. Ben kind of led into this just a little bit. One is to welcome him. Uh, I'm just glad that he's here. It's been uh, really, uh, it's been a transition season, and we're excited for what the Lord has in the future. But there's two people I want to acknowledge, and I haven't got a chance, and she's trying to hide, and I did not get a chance to call her out in the other two services, but Renee Bieberdorf in the back, raise your hand, you got to. And Angela Jones in the back here, raise your hand here. They have led us through months of transition. When I say led us, they countless hours preparing, communicating with us, praying, getting things ready, executing, dealing with all the things that come with leading um, as volunteers. And so that's a really big deal. They've helped us through a transition season, and I want us to thank them right now. Let's pray together, and we'll jump in. Father, we're grateful for your presence with us this morning. We're grateful for the access we have to your word. I love this church. I love being here, gathering with these people. I love the heart they have for children and missions um, and just being selfless. I'm just grateful. Father, this morning as we open your word, and we look at the theme of VBS this year, may it impact us this morning that we might leave this place different than when we arrived because of an encounter we would have with your word, your holy, perfect, infallible word. We are grateful for it, and we submit to it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we get started this morning, do me a favor, would you? Would you point to yourself? It's not a trick. Everybody just, just point to yourself real quick. You're like, I don't participate when people ask me to do this. I get it. Just humor me. All right, go one more time. Across the room, just point to yourself. It's fascinating. All three services. I have yet to have anybody go like this, right? <laughs> Nobody, right? When, you, when it comes to pointing to yourself, it's fascinating to me that we, we instinctively point here, right? And, and this is like this important part of who we are. We're constantly, we just, like I just said, point to yourself. Who are you? You pointed here. You didn't point here, right? You don't point to your brain and say, hey, point to yourself. No one's like looking at their brain pointing here, though you'd probably give somebody a piece of your mind, right? But... I've never heard anybody say, hey, when I'm making something really important, like, I promise with all of my appendix to fulfill what it is I'm, like, and nobody ever says, like, I, I give you, I pledge to thee my lungs. Like, no, it's like all the poetry and romance is always like, hey, when it comes to me, what I'm offering to you, I give you all of my what? Heart. My heart. 
There's something about it. We instinctively identify ourselves with our heart. Now, we're not talking about the organ in our chest that's pumping blood, right? We're talking about who we are, that instinct we have, that connection to our passions, that desire to allow certain things into our life and to push certain things out of our life. Our heart really dictates a lot of who we are and influences so much of our life. I love the way Andy Stanley writes it in his book, Enemy of the Heart. He puts this. (coughs) He says this. Our heart seeps into every conversation. It dictates every relationship. We live, parent, lead, relate, romance, confront, react, respond, instruct, manage, problem solve, and love from our heart. Our hearts impact the intensity of our communication. Our hearts have the potential to exaggerate our sensitivities and insensitivities. Every arena of life intersects with what's going on in our hearts. Everything passes through on its way to wherever it's going. Everything passes through our heart. And I think this is why the Bible is very clear about how we're supposed to handle our heart. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, it says, guard your hearts, because it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart, protect your heart. Now, even that verse is fascinating. Keep it up there. It's fascinating because that verse comes with an assumption. And the assumption is that there's something to guard your heart from. That if we have to guard our hearts, there's something that we have to guard our hearts from. Something that might be coming uh, to hurt us or to affect us. And we have to protect our hearts from what might be coming our direction. Many of us, when you say guard your heart, you're thinking like from bad habits, like laziness or anger or frustration or lust. And so guard your heart from those things. And you'd be right. You need to guard your heart from those things. But the Bible is even more provocative than that. The Bible doesn't say it's something you need to guard your heart from. But there's actually someone that you need to guard your heart from. The Bible identifies an actual enemy. It says you must guard your heart from this particular, this this one who's coming after your heart and seeks to hurt you. Consider how the New Testament lays this out. Look at these different examples. First comes from Peter, who was the uh, the disciple of Jesus who ran his mouth too much and then eventually matured. And he writes these words about the heart in 1 Peter. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, so he identifies him, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I saw a video this week, I'm not going to show it to you, it's not appropriate, of somebody who was messing with a lion and thought they could get away from the lion in time and they didn't. See, a lion's not anything to mess with and he says it's just like a lion, more powerful even, and he is coming after you, seeking to destroy you, to devour your life. You have an enemy. What about James? He writes these words, my discipleship group right now is studying through James and these words resonates says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, identifying that enemy coming for your heart, and then purify your hearts. Be intentional with what you allow into your heart. <coughs> we'll get through these allergies, I promise. Paul, when he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he cares deeply for Timothy and wants him to instruct him on how to lead the church and how to lead and disciple people, he says these words in 2 Timothy 2, escape the trap of the devil who takes people captive to do his will. You could translate that word, his heart. So the enemy wants you to do what he wants you to do. He wants to have authority in your life. He wants to devour your heart. Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that he loved dearly, spent more time with this church than any other church that we know of, and he wrote these words to the church at Ephesus. I tell you, do not give the devil a foothold, because he will take it, and he will destroy your life. Later on, he wrote these words to that same church. Take your stand against the devil's schemes, because he's coming. It's not an if, it's a when. He's coming. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the invisible realms. You have an enemy. 
And this enemy wants to devour and destroy your life, your family, everything about you. He does not care for you. He has no regard for you, but wants to destroy you. And the Bible says this is why you must protect your heart. What you allow into your heart, what you allow through the gate of your heart, influences all that you do in life and will ultimately influence what comes out of your life and out of your heart. So you must protect that entryway that goes into your heart. What you allow in and what what is ultimately going to come out, you have to be very intentional with this. And one of the ways to do that is to really think through intentionally what it is you form your life around. We would call this a worldview, how you view the world. There's three questions that every human being answers. All of us. Now, if you follow Jesus, you're here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus, you, you answer these questions. But if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're not a Christian, I think you'd agree with me too. You also answer these questions. We all answer these three questions that really dictate what we're doing with our life. They are the formation of the gate that guards our heart. Okay, these three questions. So we're going to launch in and look at each of these questions. The first question is the question of authority. And that question asks this, who has the right to tell me what to do? So who has the authority, who has the right to tell me how to live my life? Now, many of you know I didn't grow up in church. So growing up, I developed some good friendships with people that weren't Christians. I wasn't a Christian, but all of my good friends, all the way to my senior year of high school, they weren't believers in Jesus. They weren't followers. And so I became a Christian my senior year of high school, and just a few months later, I left for Bible college. Well, when I came home from Bible college, all the close friends I had, they still weren't Christians. Um, And one friend in particular, I was playing basketball with him, and this friend of mine decided to go a different route. I left a few months after um, high school to go to Bible college. He left a few months um, afterwards and didn't really go anywhere, but he decided to become a drug dealer and was really good at it and like sold a lot of drugs and was not a good dude. And so we got back and we're playing basketball and hanging out and he's real defensive this day. And I'm like, what's going on? Like we're friends, but he feels defensive because of what I'm doing with my life. And at one point during playing pickup basketball, he pulls his shirt to the side to reveal a brand new big giant tattoo that covered most of his chest. And that tattoo said, only God can judge me. Real big right here. And my first thought that came to my mind, I did not say out loud, though I was tempted, I did not say it out loud, but I thought in my head, oh, he will, right? (laughs) Only God can judge me. That's true. (laughs) What you have tattooed on yourself is true. But the thought that hit me that kind of broke my heart was, you have portrayed this truth on your chest that God can, has the authority to, but you don't submit your life to that authority. You're like advertising that. Like God has the right and the authority, but you're not submitting to that authority. That's not actually someone who you would answer this question with and say, God, God has the authority um, over my life. And look, here's the deal. All of us have to answer this question at some point in our life. We all make decisions every single day that reveal how we've answered this question. Who you believe has a right to tell you what to do. So the next question, in addition to the authority question, is the knowledge question. So who knows best? Who has the wisdom or the knowledge to know what's best for me to do? Right? Who, who is it that can tell me what's best for me to do, the decisions that I should make, that I ought to make? Some of us say it's science. Well, science can be used for good and bad, but it can't be used for morality. It doesn't answer the ought to. It doesn't tell us what we should do. Right? You might say, well, I myself, I know what's best for me. I'm the source of knowledge in my life. But you have never lived before. Look, I don't know who I'm going to be, what I'm going to desire, or what direction my life's going to be going in a week, let alone a decade. Because I've not lived my life yet. 
I don't know what's coming my way, what's going to be thrown in my direction, what circumstance or situation I'll find myself in. And so for me to pretend like I have the knowledge to handle all that all the time, I'm going to let myself down. But we all have to come to this understanding. Who is it that I would say knows what's best for me to do with my life? So the authority and the knowledge question. The third question that you have to answer is this. It's the trustworthiness or the love question. Who loves me and actually wants what is best for me in my life? So not just someone who has the authority. So it's a three-question test. It's very easy. Authority, knowledge, and love, and trust. Who, who loves me and who can I trust enough, who has my best interests in mind, that I can actually submit to what they're doing because I know that they have what's best for me in, in the front of their mind? Let me illustrate for you this way. All this comes together for you to make really important decisions in your life. Let me illustrate for you with one of the greatest creations in our history uh, as humans, ice cream. <coughs> Who has the authority to tell me whether or not I should eat ice cream, right? I could rely on myself, and the answer to that question, no matter how many times it's asked in a single day, is always yes. Like, yes, I'm allowed to eat ice cream. Absolutely, right? It's the greatest thing ever. I could rely on my reasoning and just say, you know what? I did this diet thing, and I'm, you know, I'm not who I was when I was younger, and so maybe I shouldn't eat as much ice cream as I once did. I could rely on my uh, experience and say, okay, well, I've watched my wife instruct my kids and say, hey, ice cream's good, but not, you have to like, not put that much sugar into your system, and she explains to them why, and so maybe I should listen to what she has to say. Maybe I have a religious conviction, and I'm fasting, and so during that fast, I should not eat ice cream. All of the answers to these questions come into play. Who has the best interest in mind for me? Is it the person who says, don't eat ice cream? Or is it the person that says, eat all you want, right? It's really hard to form this decision. And that has nothing to even do with the flavor you're going to pick. That's just whether or not you should eat the ice cream. Here's the point. The way we answer these questions is so extremely important that when we answer these questions different from one another, we should not be surprised that when we arrive at our destination, we're miles apart. See, there has to be an answer to these questions that unites us, that makes things easier. Anybody want ice cream? I got chocolate. You went up first, you need a spoon? Okay. I need one more, right here, Will. You gotta share it, that's bigger. That's actually the better one. Strawberry shortcake, that's awesome. There you go, good job. All right, the answer to these questions, I think they're gonna actually listen to me now. This is good, I got two people. This is good. I just earned it. I have the authority over them now, right? Well, here's the deal. Every, every time I look at my children, and I'm sure you're like me, I want my kids to answer these questions with the Bible. I want them to have what I would call the biblical worldview, the Bible to inform these questions. That's kind of the hope for every kid that comes through here. And so two things have to happen. This is really hard for parents to hear. This is hard for me to hear. One is I cannot be the answer to these questions for my children. Or maybe you're like, I don't have kids, don't need to listen. Yeah, you do, because you have an influence on somebody else in your life. And whoever you're influencing in any leadership capacity whatsoever, you cannot expect them to land where you land biblically while also being the answer to these questions for them. You just can't. And so as a parent, I cannot be the ultimate authority in my child's life. That's hard, especially on bad days, right? And I cannot be the knowledge of knowing everything that's best for them all the time. And I cannot be the one that they place their ultimate trust in. That's hard. In any capacity of leadership or influence, that's a difficult thing to swallow. That's hard. But instead, we should be a reflection of the answer we want them to have. 
right? We should reflect how we want them to answer these questions. And in order to do that, you have to know how to answer the questions. And so I want to walk through real quickly how the Bible responds to these three questions of authority, knowledge, and trust. Well, the Bible answers the, uh, the question of authority really simply. The, the, the answer is that God is the creator. <coughs> God has the authority because he's the one that created. The very verse, first verse in the entire Bible tells us this. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. What is made belongs to the maker. What is created belongs to the creator. Simply because he's the creator, he has the authority to speak over what it is that he created. And here's the thing. If I'm one of the things he created, which the Bible tells me I am, he then, because he's my creator, has the right to tell me what to do simply because he's the one that created me. But what about the knowledge question? How is God the one who knows what's best for me to do? Well, that's because of the creation, right? That's because of the creation. That because God created, because he knows his creation inside and out, he knows what's coming next. He knows what's best for his creation to do because he's the one that created it to begin with. Psalm chapter 24 says this, the, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, <coughs> the world and all who live in it. He's the one that created it. He founded it on the seas and established it on the water. So because God created it all, he knows what's best for it. Look, if my car, my Toyota has a problem, I'm not taking it to the fire station to get it fixed. I'm going to take it to a Toyota dealer if I can, a Toyota mechanic if I can, ideally. Why? Because they're the ones that put it together. They know what's best for it going forward. Okay? Same thing is true with creation. God created, so he has authority. God created, so he has knowledge of his creation, and he knows what's best for his creation to do. But look, just because God has authority and knowledge doesn't make him good, does it? That's not what makes God good. So why is it we should put our trust in him and view him as the one that loves us and has our best interest at heart? And the answer to that is simple. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. We can trust him, and we can know that he loves us more than we love ourselves or anyone else can love us because of what he's done for us. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. I can trust him because of what he's done for me because how he's come through for me. So he can have the authority over my life. He can have the knowledge to know what's best for me, and I can place my trust in him because of Jesus, because he's the creator, because he is over his creation and knows his creation better than the creation knows itself, and because of what he's done for me. I like the way Andrew Walker says it in his book. He says this, A crucified creator is a God who has the authority to tell us what to do, who has the wisdom to know what is best for us, and who has proved that he can be trusted to tell us what is best for us. The Bible reveals to us a God who has the authority to demand our obedience and who has the character that deserves our respect. See, this is the God of the Bible. This is how God answers these three questions. Now, here's the deal. That is the purpose behind everything we do as a church. Everything. This is why we say disciples making disciples. This is why I tell the staff all the time, you're not in ministry when you work here anymore. You're an equipper. You're an equipper, and you're equipping other people to do ministry. We give ministry away. Other people are the ones doing the ministry. Why? Because of this truth. Because we want to plant the seeds in as many lives as possible to help people understand that Jesus is the answer to all three of the most important questions you will ever ask in your life. He's the solution. And so when you come here, we want to equip you to go. This is why we dump money into children's ministry and resources in the children's ministry and student ministry and discipleship groups. We want people to learn and to be equipped to take this great message, the answer to these three most important questions that human beings ask. 
and be able to go and communicate this truth to as many people as we possibly can. And I think, I think, if you're in Christ, you want that for that next generation. I desire that every time I go in and look at my kids sleeping, I think, I want you to know the answer to these three questions, but not necessarily always the way we came about it. See, for many of us, our experience in church was I grew up being told what to believe, never shown, never led to it. And so when I got to college, I went out to learn some of life's lessons. And along the way, made all kinds of horrible mistakes. And if we were to sit down and have a cup of coffee, you'd probably tell me, hey, uh, some of the things I experienced during my time away from the church, we don't say Jesus, for some reason we always say the church. My time away from the church were really good lessons for me to learn. And I would say, yeah, I agree. But you'd probably also admit some of them were really bad. I don't want my kids to experience that. What I've come to learn in my life is this. I don't want my kids to have my testimony. Just don't. I want my kids to look back on their life and say, I don't remember a time where I didn't love Jesus. But in order for them to do that, they have to be able to answer these questions honestly, sincerely from their heart, understanding what it is that's guarding and protecting their heart. And so just this year when he was planning out VBS with his team, they came across this passage we're going to study today in John chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you can open it up. And this passage really illustrates from the words of Jesus exactly what we've been talking about this morning. Jesus has gathered his disciples and he's doing this teaching and he uses this parable, this story, to really illustrate this point. And then he has to explain the parable because like us, like the rest of us, they're like sheep, they don't get it. And so beginning in verse 1, Jesus lays out this teaching for them. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So right away, Jesus says, hey, the sheep are kept under the care of the shepherd, but they are not outside of harm's way because there's an enemy that is coming for their heart. He's coming to steal, to kill, to destroy, lead to destruction in their life. And if they're not careful and they don't put themselves under the care of the shepherd, they're up against an enemy. They're powerless to fight on their own. They cannot win this battle against this enemy when he comes attacking their heart. And so the shepherd, his goal is to protect them. And when you're in Christ, he says, you recognize the voice of the shepherd as he leads you with his authority, his knowledge, as he's earned your trust. See how that works. You see, sheep, they recognize the voice of their shepherd. They're not smart animals. The Bible uses this analogy for a very good reason. And uh, I was uh, informed about this again this morning, and I'm sure I'll continue to be informed about this. Uh, we've had a good opportunity with our elders to go out to Tad Thompson's place and, and really learn about sheep, um, even more than we wanted to. And you learn these animals are dumb. I told someone after the first service, I think uh, sheep are evidence that evolution can't be true because there's no way they would have survived, right? <laughs> there's like no way. Only the strong survive. What are sheep still doing here, right? They're just dumb animals because they don't get it, but the one thing they do get is the voice of their shepherd. In Palestine, in, Palestine, in, in, in Jesus' day, a shepherd would never drive his sheep. He would never get out behind them and drive them. He would always lead them with his voice. 
And he would call out certain characteristics of the sheep, and the sheep would know who they were because of the voice of the shepherd. He would sing songs and lead them and guide them, and they would know his voice, and they would listen. And a stranger could mimic it or mock it or trick them. But an enemy could come and get them and attack them. There's this uh, really well-known preacher, I want to get his name right, G. Campbell Morgan and a, a New Testament scholar, George Adam Smith, Sir George Adam Smith. And Smith was telling uh, Morgan on a, on a trip together about his time out east in Palestine, not, not too long ago. And he said this, he said, hey, when I was out there, I got to actually meet a shepherd. And the shepherd went and showed me where he keeps his sheep. And there were four walls in this entryway. And he would come in and he would explain to me how it worked and how he communicated with them and how much he cared for them. And, and, he, and he, would, he was talking about it. And, and he said, they're safe here. And every night we gather them in and they're safe inside these walls. But, but he asked him, he said, hey, I've noticed that there's no door on the entryway. Like, how are they safe if there's no door? And the shepherd responded, I'm the door. Every night I lay down in the entryway. And this is where I sleep. And any sheep that wants to get out has to go over me. And any enemy that wants to get in has to go over me. And they're not going to get to these sheep. This is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that when you're a Christian, at the entry to your heart, Jesus is there. And he can help you understand what to allow in and what will ultimately come out. Because what goes in will ultimately come out and affect your life. But he's saying when you're in Christ, you're protected and you're guarded. It brings to mind what Jesus would say just a few chapters later in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Meaning this, he's the only way to salvation. He's the only one that can answer those three questions we've been talking about accurately. He's the only one. The only one that can accurately answer those questions and remain consistent in his answer to those questions. And he will guard your heart. And then Jesus says, the enemy that's coming, he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's for emphasis. The writer is emphasizing this enemy is no joke. He's not playing fair. He's not someone to mess with. He's not, he's not a lion that you just go out and you just kind of randomly mess with and hope that you can get back into safety before the lion devours you. He will catch you every time and destroy you if you're not protected by the shepherd. And so Jesus says, I've come to give them life and give it to them abundantly. There's a twofold meaning to that. One is salvation. One is if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about anything in this life because heaven's waiting for you. It's this incredible and awesome experience you're going to have. You're going to be with the Lord, and nothing can take that from you. You're going to go to heaven. It's going to be incredible. But the other meaning to this is this. Jesus just doesn't want you to look forward to the hope of heaven. He wants you to live a life of abundance now. And it's not money and wealth and health. It's none of that. What he means is this confidence that you are inside the walls, protected by the shepherd. And look, when you live knowing that you're safe, knowing that no matter what the enemy throws your way, Jesus has got you, you let your guard down. When you let your guard down, you get to experience the joy of this life. Real joy. You're not on guard all the time. Look, this picture of these sheep is this picture of living life abundantly. The picture Jesus is communicating is fat, content, happy sheep, not scared sheep that are off in the corner worried every five seconds that something bad might happen to them. And I'm convinced that many Christians don't believe that Jesus doesn't just want them to have the hope of heaven, but the hope right here and right now. Because we don't always live with confidence. We don't always experience joy in life. We almost feel guilty when we're happy. Howard Hendricks, a famous preacher from Dallas, said this, most Christians' faces would make really good book covers for the book of Lamentations. We're just sour. Like, we, don't, we have fun. Like, enjoy life. And Jesus says, I want you to enjoy life now in the confidence that the enemy can't steal from you what he's given to you. 
You don't have to work harder, make more money, and have a better reputation. He's given you your identity. He wants you to live in that confidence. So I made a list of some things to me that the, the confidence I have that he is at the gate guarding me and protecting me. He has given me the ability to see some things and see them from a different perspective because that's really what happens to you. Now I put down sunsets and sunrises. See, when I'm secure in Christ, a sunset is not the ending to yet another bad day and a sunrise another bad day. No, I look at them with a whole different perspective because of Jesus and what he's done. I put sun, sunrise and sunset. I put snow. Yeah, I said it. But I also wrote temporary next to it because it's not cool for long, all right? I put the beach. It's on my list. It should be on yours. All right? When I enjoy his creation and what he's done and what he's doing, I see it differently when he's my shepherd. I see it. I experience it completely different when he's my shepherd. A child's laughter. I, that'll be on every list. I can't get enough of my kids laughing. And when they laugh, man, it's like, a, it's like a connection to the heart of God. I just see it different. I experience it different. A mother's hug. A father's advice. I put a warm bed on a cold night. Ben corrected me and said it needs to be a cold bed on a warm night. <laughs> Ben's wrong, but at least that's what he... <laughs> Look, Jesus, he's come that we might enjoy this life with confidence, that what the enemy is coming to steal from us, he can't have, right? He cannot take it from you. You can actually enjoy and live a full life now, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in. How do you find joy in the midst of suffering? Jesus. How do you endure difficulty and persecution and opposition? Jesus, because you know he is guarding the gate to your heart and the enemy can't get in because the battle's already been won. So I want to close with a few questions, and it's easy to get distracted. You're thinking, man, I don't know if I even like this sermon or the music or where are we going for lunch. I get all these things might be coming through your mind. I want to ask you for a few moments. Just pause. I can't answer these next questions for you. I can't. I think they're some of the most important questions that you can answer in your life. But only you can wrestle through how you would actually answer this. When all the noise is gone, the party's over, and everybody goes home, and it's just you you're by yourself and you start wrestling with these truths, how do you answer these questions? The first question is this, whose voice <coughs> are you listening to? Who is the most influential and powerful voice in your life? Is it your boss, some political leader, your bank account, spouse, a child? Who is it? Do you know the voice of the shepherd who has proved himself worthy to have authority over your life? the knowledge to know what's best for you and the trust and the love that you would give to him because of what he's done for you? Next question. Who has the right to tell you what to do? Is it you? Remember, you haven't lived yet. You're going to mess up and fail. Who have you given the authority, the right to tell you what to do with your life? Next question, who has the wisdom or the knowledge to know what's best for you to do with your life? Is it you again? Is it your circumstances, your society, your culture, things that are constantly changing, going up and down, or is it, is it the Father, the voice of the shepherd? It's the intimate connection you have to this God as you meet him in the pages of Scripture and you live for him with your life. The last question, do you know, do you really know, I mean really know how much he loves you? I mean, have you really contemplated and thought through, man, how incredible it is that 
I know I can trust that he has my best interest in mind. Give him the authority in my life and obey the knowledge that he would give to me because he sent Jesus to die for me. He did for me what no one else could or has done for me. He restored me to the Father. I hear the shepherd's voice because of him. Look, I don't know how you're going to answer these questions, but here's the thing. The answer that you come up with to these questions has to be strong enough to protect you from the enemy who's coming for you. How you answer these questions must be strong enough to protect your heart from the enemy who is coming after you with everything he's got. And I am convinced that there's only one answer to these questions that is strong enough to withstand the blow of an enemy like that, and it's Jesus. And my hope for you, whether you've been following him for years or you're not following him yet, that after today you'd walk out of this place, you might start thinking, how am I answering these questions? And you might come to the conclusion there's only one answer. It's Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life that he lived, this perfect, incredible life. Father, we thank you for (coughs) the love that was displayed for us. God, I thank you for creating from nothing. And because of that creation, Father, we want to give you the authority in our life. We want to understand that you have the knowledge to know what is best for us, and we seek that in your word and with your people. Father, ultimately, we place our trust in you because of the love you've displayed for us. We thank you for that. As we leave this place, may we be represented as ambassadors of that truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we get ready to take communion, it's one of the most important, if not the most important part of our service. We do it each week. And uh, I thought I came across this incredible story to really prepare our hearts for communion. And the difficulty uh, is, like, I wanted to just retell you the story, but I read it, and I read it again. I'm like, it's just so well written. So I'm just going to read it to you. This is coming from a Bible college professor who teaches preaching. Please keep that in mind, okay? Coming from a Bible college professor. His name is Mike Graves, and he writes these words. When a colleague and I were invited to be a part of a former student's orientation service, We agreed enthusiastically and traveled together to his town. Joe had many family members coming to the service, so we were surprised when he told us that we were going to go eat before the service that evening. I wondered how 19 of us were going to get in and out of a restaurant in time to get to the church. I suggested that my colleague and I go ahead to the restaurant and put our name in on the waiting list. And the restaurant was packed. I wiggled through that giant crowd all the way to the front of the line and found an Amish man standing behind an old pulpit. Next to him was a hand-carved sign with the very clearly written words, please do not give your name until everyone in your party is present. Anybody have an idea where this is headed? I understood the reason for the restaurant's policy, but I also knew that it would take a long time for a table of 19 to be ready. I said, yes, the name is Graves, party of 19. The Amish man with his beard and his hat looked directly into my eyes and very clearly asked, and is your whole party present? Haltingly, I said, yes. Okay, I lied. But it wasn't as if I were trying to beat the system. After all, the smaller parties were going to have to wait 30 or more minutes, so we'd be putting in our waiting time too. No big deal. But my colleague disagreed with me. You lied to the Amish, he said. You can't lie to the Amish. Lying to a Presbyterian, that's no big deal, but not to the Amish. I responded, by the time they call our name, I said, Joe and his family, they're going to be here. It's not going to be a big problem. Not two minutes later. The announcement came, Graves, party of 19. 
I went back to the Amish man and slowly walked up with my head dropped and said, uh, the graves party. Well, we're not all here yet. I was nervous now, and I may have even giggled a little bit. The man looked directly into my eyes and said, did you lie? Now, this was a restaurant, but the whole lobby of the restaurant grew deadly silent. It felt like we were in church. The people immediately around us, they waited wide-eyed and wondering, what is this guy going to say? Everybody was watching him and the Amish guy, and he, he says, I replied softly, yes, I lied. This is a guy who teaches preaching. Keep that in mind. Come with me, the Amish man said. Now I got scared. I couldn't imagine what he was going to do. What kind of punishment did the Amish hand out to liars? So I followed him into the back, picturing all kinds of craziness. We followed him through the restaurant to the back, where he opened a door to the banquet room. A huge table was set with bread and jelly and jams, all kinds of stuff. He offered a gentle smile, looked at me and said, Have some bread. You're forgiven. That's the gospel. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've experienced in this life, if you are in Christ, if he is guarding the gate of your heart, every week, no matter where we've been, it's as if he opens the doors to the banquet table, he looks at us and says, have some bread, have some juice. You're forgiven. That's my prayer for you. If you're in Christ as we take communion this morning, no matter what you've been struggling with, you might look at that great banquet table and hear the voice of your Savior, your shepherd, the one who has authority, the one who has the knowledge of what's best for you, the one in whom you've already placed your trust with your life, and you might hear him look at you and say, enjoy the bread, enjoy the juice. Because of it, you're forgiven. Let's pray.